Study to be a journalist and you learn very quickly that there are ethical guidelines which you should follow. Certain lines you do not cross. Truthfulness, objectivity, protect your source's anonymity. Study to be a filmmaker and you learn the same thing. Only the guidelines are not just ethical, but also spatial and temporal. By which I mean film's grammar and vocabulary. One is the 180 degree rule. In any given scene involving two characters, an imaginary axis exists between them, which the camera should never cross, instead remaining on the same side of that line in order for the spatial continuity to be maintained. Well, while that is a truth, it is not an absolute, because there are plenty of filmmakers who have shown in many films that it doesn't always matter. Take a peek at Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura, Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, Peter Bogdanovich's Paper Moon, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, David Fincher's Fight Club, Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, Spike Lee's The 25th Hour, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. Now, I know that in the entire history of cinema, that list amounts to barely a baker's dozen. But I think they provide enough evidence that violating the 180 degree axis isn't necessarily a sign of inept filmmaking. I say that because Michael Mann did exactly the same thing in his superb drama The Insider, a movie, appropriately enough, about journalism and ethics, and yes, crossing the line. You manipulated me into this. That's bullshit, Jeff. You greased the rails. I greased the rails for a guy who wanted to say yes, I helped him to say yes, that's all. You're not a robot, Jeff. Right? You got a mind of your own, don't you? Up to you, Jeffrey. That's the power you have, Jeffrey. Vital insider information the American public need to know. Lowell Bergman, the hotshot who never met a source he couldn't turn around. I fought for you, and I still fight for you. You fought for me? You manipulated me. Into where I am now. Staring at the Brown and Williamson building. It's all dark except the 10th floor. That's the legal department. That's where they fuck with my life. Released in 1999, the Insider is based on Marie Brenner's exhaustively researched 18,000-word article, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which, printed in Vanity Fair in May 1996, chronicled the dual stories of Jeffrey Wigand, former head of research at one of America's biggest cigarette manufacturers, who, the previous year, turned whistleblower on the tobacco industry, and Lowell Bergman, producer of the CBS news show 60 Minutes, who was prevented by severe legal restrictions and corporate pressure within his own organisation from revealing how the tobacco firms spike their products with highly concentrated nicotine to enhance addiction amongst their consumers. I don't know how to say this, Jeff, except to just say it right out. So uh, I'll say it. They do not want to air it. What? B&W may have threatened litigation. CBS is on the block. But you, I, I, I mean, I know how you... No. Know what? I do not think that you know for me what it is to walk in my shoes. For my kids to have seen it. For them to know why I put them through what I did. The public airing of that, the testament to why I did what I did, you're telling me it's not going to see the light of day. Jeff. <laughs> there was a scene about an hour into the film where Bergman and Wigand meet for dinner. And for some reason, Mann and his director of photography, Dante Spanotti, cross the axis two times, consecutively. So it appears that Bergman and Wigand 
played respectively by Al Pacino and Russell Crowe, switch seats. To help explain why, here is one of the Insider's three editors, William Goldenberg, being interviewed in 2015 at the Manhattan Edit Workshop by Bobby Osteen, who is herself the author of one of the best books on the art, The Invisible Cut. So this particular clip is um, a cat and mouse scene. Um, I'll let you set it up. Well, it's um, Al uh, Lowell Bergman is trying to convince Wigan to go on 60 Minutes, but at the same time letting him know what's going to happen to him if he does. And, and it's all sort of um, a big schmooze to get him to do it. And then, but Jeffrey is really smart and understands what's being done to him. And he sort of, you know, you know turns the tables on him. And there's some cutting in here towards the end. And, and um, you'll know what it is when you see it when I say turning the tables. Bergman and Weigand are in a Japanese restaurant, seated at a tradition chapudai on the floor in the Seiza position. From that description, we could be looking at a Nozu film. Only the cutting would be much faster. After an establishing shot and customary reverse over the shoulder shots, Mann delivers a shot showing us both actors in profile on either side of the frame, their postures providing neat symmetry. Here are two strong-willed personalities trying to engage with the same issue, but from different perspectives. You go public and 30 million people hear what you gotta say, nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. You believe that? No. You should. Because when you're done, a judgment, is going to go down in the court of public opinion, my friend. And that's the power you have. And then Goldenberg cuts to the reverse angle. By crossing the line, we're being offered fresh insight. As the saying goes, you can't change a person's mind, but you can change what they see. You believe that because you get information out to people, something happens? Yes. And maybe that's just what you've been telling yourself all these years to justify having a good job, having status. Maybe for the audience, it's just voyeurism, something to do on a Sunday night. And maybe it won't change a fucking thing. And people like myself and my family are left hung out to dry, used up, broke, alone. Earlier in the exchange, Weigand admitted he had somewhat turned the tables on Bergman, having done some investigation of his own on a then relatively new platform called the Internet. The information available revealed Bergman was a graduate of University of California, San Diego. In the late 1960s, he had studied under political theorist Herbert Marcuse. Marcuse argued that because it resulted in passive consumers, entertainment was a form of social control. Here is Bergman being interviewed in 2008 by Harry Chrysler on the show Conversations with History for University of California Television, detailing how studying under Marcuse enabled him to breach the boundaries of orthodox thinking and then move into a more critical position. Well, I think a combination of things. One, one was that it was, to me, and always stayed the same, was that it was an attempt to look for the truth that you knew and felt versus what you were told. Mm -hmm. So if the US was the defender of democracy, how come there was apartheid, basically, in the United States? If we were the, the peace-loving country, why were we early in the 60s bombing Laos or Vietnam or then it was the Dominican Republic, invading places and so on? Um, and it, it's those kinds of stark contrasts that, that people like myself, I think, were working out during this period of time. Stepping across the line from where television was viewed as entertainment and into the arena of investigative journalism, Bergman is now trying to get Weigand to make public his knowledge about the tobacco industry, which means that Weigand is going to have to cross the line and breach his own confidentiality agreement. So we have lots of lines being crossed. But there is yet another line that is crossed in the film, 
or rather another line, in the manufacturing of cigarettes. Not the legal one where the CEOs of the biggest companies stood before Congress and perjured themselves about cigarettes not being harmful to your health. I'm speaking of the blood-brain barrier. The tobacco companies sought to breach that barrier by using chemical additives such as ammonia and coumarin in order to make their products addictive. The industry calls it impact boosting. Here is Wagand in the original 60 Minutes interview with Mike Wallace, conducted in August 1995, but not broadcast in full until February 1996. I believe he perjured himself because I watched those testimonies very carefully. All of us did. There was the whole line of people, the, the whole line of CEOs up there, all swearing that... And part of the reason I'm here is I felt that their representation, clearly, at least within Brown and Williamson's representation, clearly misstated what they commonly knew as language within the company. That we're in a nicotine delivery business. And that's what cigarettes are for? Most certainly. It's a delivery device for nicotine. A delivery device for nicotine. Put it in your mouth, light it up, and you're going to get your fix. You're going to get your fix. Portrayed by Christopher Plummer in the film, Mike Wallace was a three-time Peabody and multi-Emmy award-winning journalist who by that time had worked with Bergman for over a decade. Which is the reason Mann decided to open the film with Bergman crossing yet another line. This time, a border into the Hezbollah-controlled region of Lebanon with the hope of landing an interview with Sheikh Fadlala. However, Mann uses another visual conceit to present another of the film's themes. And that is revelation. As the film begins, we find ourselves looking in incredibly close detail at a cloth. On the soundtrack, we hear pulsating music laden with an urgent voice singing in Arabic. We have absolutely no idea where we are, but when the image cuts to another angle, we see a Mercedes-Benz hurtling through the streets onto the escort of an armed convoy. We pass to a checkpoint, and as the car arrives at its destination, a blindfolded man is taken into a house. Once seated inside, Bergman hears the voice of Sheikh Fadlala. Please to explain why I should agree to interview with pro-Zionist American media. Because I think Hezbollah is trying to broaden into a political party right now, so you care about what you're thought of in America. And in America, at this moment in time, Hezbollah does not have a face. That's why. Perhaps you prove journalism objectivity, and I see the questions first. Then I decide if I grant the interview. No, we don't do that. Then the sheik simply disappears, leaving Bergman alone in the room. He takes off his blindfold and, getting his bearings, pulls back a curtain. The image burns to white as the camera, just like our eyes, takes a second to adjust to the sudden flood of light. So, if The Insider is a film about Jeffrey Wigand blowing the whistle on Big Tobacco, why begin with Lowell Bergman in Lebanon? Because the film isn't just about Wigand and Big Tobacco. The journey Bergman undergoes may not be life-threatening. Wigand was allegedly on the receiving end of several death threats. But nonetheless, the experience results in Bergman questioning the ideals of his profession. There are plenty of films about journalists uncovering corruption, scandals, vast conspiracies and crimes. Think of All the President's Men, The Parallax View, The Year of Living Dangerously, The Killing Fields and Salvador. For the most part, those films rarely implicate journalism itself. Instead, the profession is presented as a bastion of diligence and rectitude. And that is what puts the insider into a different realm. Examining the fault lines within the profession, it belongs more to the likes of Citizen Kane, Ace in the Hole, 
Sweet Smell of Success, Network and Spotlight. In those films, truth is not necessarily a virtue, but a commodity to be modified in order to maximise profits. As the insider unfolds, we come to realise it is just as much about Lowell Bergman and the calcifying practices of big media. Because, when the explosive interview with Weigand was done, Bergman assumed he had landed the scoop of the decade. Only for the entire story to be quashed, not by CBS News editors, but by the CBS corporate division. And so, just as Jeffrey Wigan's resolve to reveal the truth about Big Tobacco was most severely tested, so too will Bergman's ethical codes, corporate loyalty and professional integrity be stretched to the absolute limit. Therefore, the opening shot behind the blindfold comes to represent Bergman's journey of ultimate discovery, that the very standard to which he aspires, truth, the very arena in which he works, journalism, is just as prone to secrecy and concealing the truth as any other industry. He slowly comes to consider the journalist's credentials, which he has so proudly carried to be neither a shield nor a badge of honour, but a mask, a veil, a blindfold, that has been concealing the truth of his own profession. CBS is not in the truth delivery business. Rather, they are in the corporate protection business. You're exaggerating. I am? You pay me to go get guys like Wygand, to draw him out, to get him to trust us, to get him to go on television. I do. I deliver him. He sits, he talks. He violates his own fucking confidentiality agreement. And he's only the key witness in the biggest public health reform issue, maybe the biggest, most expensive corporate malfeasance case in U.S. history. And Jeffrey Wigand, who's out on a limb, does he go on television and tell the truth? Yes. Is it newsworthy? Yes. Are we going to air it? Of course not. Why? Because he's not telling the truth. No, because he is telling the truth. That's why we're not going to air it. And the more truth he tells, the worse it gets. Overall, the insider argues that everyone has a price and that the only truly free people are those whose integrity cannot be bought. Such personalities are beholden to no one and no thing other than themselves and the principles in which they've invested their time, talent and energy. In Bergman's case, truthfulness, objectivity and a commitment to protect his source's anonymity. And in Wigan's case, truthfulness, objectivity and a commitment to protect the public's health. What the film is about then is what happens when those protections are stripped away. What does a person have left? Throughout his films, Michael Mann repeatedly strips his lead characters of what they think is their modus operandi, and then has them questioning what is left in their life. And interestingly, those moments are frequently visualised with men looking out over bodies of water. Consider Thief, Manhunter, Heat, The Insider and Miami Vice. On the surface, it would appear a Nietzschean moment of their staring into the abyss and the abyss staring back at them and it is in that moment that their character is formed. But another way of considering it is again the breaching of a barrier, the crossing of a line, literally from land to sea. Which makes it a moment of fluidity, when the characters suddenly realise that nothing is fixed, everything is mutable, that the tide will turn. Here is Bergman again, this time in 2017, being interviewed by New York Times lawyer David McCraw at the School of Journalism at University of Arizona. Can this story be done today? Uh, it could be done, uh, but it's less likely simply because 60 Minutes would be the outlier, one of the few places that would have the resources to do it, because its advertising revenue is relatively high. In-depth reporting 
that's critical of a major multinational corporation or someone of great personal wealth, of which we have more oligarchs, is getting more and more difficult for any major news organization to take on. Upon its release in November 1999, The Insider was met with considerable controversy, but also very strong reviews. However, despite receiving multiple nominations, the PGA, DGA, WGA, SAG, BAFTA, Golden Globe, as well as seven Oscar nominations, the film did not connect with audiences. From a budget of $68 million, it earned just $60 million worldwide. I think that comes down to the fact that for all its drama and intrigue, it doesn't have a strong emotional tone. Instead, The Insider is a cerebral film, adopting a detached, analytic approach to its subject. That's not a criticism, because for me, Mann and his co-writer Eric Roth delivered a far more penetrative experience than had they just aimed straight for the heart. <laughs>